On this episode of The Warrior Within Us, I have the pleasure of introducing you to Brett Morris. I was recently a guest on Brett's podcast, Recovery Survey, and now I have the opportunity to have him share his story of recovery from meth and alcohol addiction. Brett is now a loving, dedicated husband and father, which is a wonderful example of the possibility of recovery. Check out Brett's show wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, and be sure to visit him on Instagram at Recovery Survey. Let's get started. Hey, Warriors. Are you an expert that supports people going through life changes? Are you passionate about helping people live their best lives? Are you ready to reach bigger audiences, new clients, expand your digital footprint, and get your name in the press? If you answered yes to any of those questions, it's time to join the Fresh Starts Expert Community. The Fresh Starts Expert Community is here to support you as an expert so you can reach the clients that need you when they need you. Membership in the Fresh Starts Expert Community fully supports you in establishing your brand as an expert building your digital footprint, and bolstering your online presence. For only $37 a month, monthly membership in the Fresh Starts Expert Community includes a standalone profile on a platform that reaches thousands of people a month, exclusive workshops, seminars, support in social media, marketing, business development, and even public relations. Yes, monthly membership includes PR support to get your name out into the world. Head to freshstartsregistry.com today and apply to become an expert and join the only community of support experts changing the world today. Use code within us for your first month free. That's code W-I-T-H-I-N-U-S for your first month of membership free. Hi, my name is Kristen McAlizzi. I'm a mindset and empowerment coach, a mother of four, a proud wife, a sister, a friend, and a lover of life. Each week, I want to bring you conversations that will touch your heart, make you laugh, inspire you, teach you, and help you grow into the fullest, realest version of yourself. I believe when we dare to be vulnerable and share our stories, we see the humanness of one another and often recognize the bravery inside of ourselves. Whether it's extraordinary or seemingly ordinary, everybody has a warrior story. Welcome to The Warrior Within Us. Um, You are the host of Recovery Survey, which I had the pleasure of being on um, this past week, actually. And so I was really excited to talk to you today to sort of swap stories. So you got to hear a little bit of my story, and now I have the pleasure of getting to hear a little bit of yours. So I thought we would start off, um, if I could just ask you a question right off the bat, and then we'll let the conversation flow from there. Sure. And the question I've thought of is what is the one piece of advice? If you had a chance to go back and give to your younger self, like maybe say late teens, 16, 17, 18, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself, um, now that you've lived the life you've lived after that? Oh, that's a good question. And I feel like our stories kind of had a lot of parallels and I can definitely relate to what you shared about, you know, just not feeling a part of just kind of feeling alien and not, not really feeling comfortable in my own skin as, as a teenager. And just, you know, it's an awkward enough time as it is going through puberty and trying to figure out life. Uh, so I guess for me, if I had to give myself advice, I would let myself know that I'm not alone and then that other people that other people feel the same way that i feel because i think that was one of the biggest things for me was just feeling like nobody understands me nobody nobody gets what i'm going through nobody's ever felt this way just kind of this sense of isolation and i would tell myself that there's other people that are like me and there's other people that have had the same thoughts and feelings and and have been and have lived through similar experiences Mm, I think that's so important because really that's so true of the human experience, right? Like when we go through something really hard, we think that there's no possible way that somebody could help us because there's no way anyone has ever been in our shoes. And I can't really think of any scenario in life that any of us have to walk through that somebody else hasn't walked through either the same situation or 
quite frankly, even a very different situation, but had some of the same feelings that come along with that. So um, I think just knowing we're not alone is such a huge um, part of feeling, you know, sort of understood and maybe not going through such a, you know, even though we're going to go through the hard experience anyway, it just makes the burden so much less if we know that we're not alone. So I definitely think that that's pretty solid advice. So if you um, could tell me a little bit about how your podcast recovery survey, how you started it, where sort of the story that led up to it and, you know, what your kind of um, inspiration for starting the podcast came from. Yeah, definitely. So I've been doing it for almost three years now. I started it about a week before COVID lockdowns happened in my area. Uh, and I worked at a job where I worked by myself a lot and I, I just brought headphones with me. I listened to podcasts all day while I was at work and I'd listened to a few different recovery podcasts and there was just something in me that was like, I don't know if it'd be higher power or what you would attribute it to. Um, I, I choose to, to think that it was my higher power kind of guiding me, but I just had this feeling like you can, you need to do this. You need to start a podcast. You need to help people. And then it just, the timing was so perfect where COVID hit, not that, you know, it sounds terrible to say that the timing was perfect because COVID was, it was not a, not a good, not a positive thing in general, you know, cause economy and people's livelihoods and sickness and death and all that, but just the timing of it and, and being able to have a little bit more free time, not being at work, having a little bit of time to kind of figure out what I was doing. Cause I had no idea how to edit or I didn't really have experience with interviewing people. I honestly, I was like, like, even like you said on, on our episode, you know, the, the social introvert, like I, that would definitely be what I would categorize myself as, is, is more of an introvert and just trying to figure out how to do everything. It just kind of fell into place and COVID hits and then everybody's stuck at home. And I just, start looking at like recovery hashtags and stuff on social media, finding people posting about recovery. And then I start sending them messages like, Hey, I'm starting a podcast. Would you be interested in being a guest? And just started talking to people online about recovery. And, uh, it just kind of took off because originally I had a whole nother idea for how I wanted my show to be. I had this whole concept of interviewing people from my meeting that I go to my home group and, doing like topic discussions and having multiple people participate and then COVID hits and we're not getting together anymore. And it just <laughs> kind of turns into an interview show. So I didn't really know what I was doing. Didn't know where this was going to go. Uh, but it's been such a great journey getting to meet people like you and other folks in recovery and having these conversations and hearing people's stories and, and even more than that, hearing, getting that feedback from people. I got a message a couple nights ago from, from a mom whose daughter is struggling with substance use and, and she's been listening to the podcast and, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't really know exactly what to do to help her daughter. But by hearing these stories of recovery, it's giving her that, that little bit of hope that maybe one day her daughter will get it. And that, you know, it doesn't have to end in, in jails, institutions and death that she might be able to get out of that addiction and, and live a life of recovery. So just getting those little messages and stuff also helps to know that there's people that are listening and not just that they're listening. Cause I don't care if I get 10 listens or 10,000 listens, it's the fact that it's helping people. And that's what, that's what encourages me to keep doing it and to know that I'm doing what I need to be doing because people are, are being helped and being touched by those episodes. Absolutely. I think always like, even if it's just one person you reach, right. One person you help, then that makes it all worth it. Um, and likely there's more than one. Uh, and like I shared with you, um, I think even if you haven't had the same lived experience as somebody else, even if you, I mean, I think it's safe to say that it's rare to find somebody that hasn't in some way had addiction touch their lives somewhere. But even if you have a hard time like pinpointing how addiction has, has, um, you know, influenced your life or, or shown up in your life. There's something in somebody else's story that's familiar and that 
there's a message there that you can receive, even if it isn't like the exact same experience that you've had. So I think, you know, I'm obviously a large proponent of like sharing stories and like in the process, trying to eliminate any shame that comes from whatever your lived experience is. Definitely. I, I agree a hundred percent. And and like you said, there's always something, there's always pieces in other people's stories that I can relate to. And it might not be the exact situation I've been through, but I can definitely relate to that. And, and even if you're not in recovery, just hearing those stories of tragedy to triumph, like who doesn't love that kind of story? Like mm. that's, that's what some of the most famous books and TV shows and movies are about or seeing, you know, this, this underdog overcome this obstacle, like that's just, we're drawn to those kind of stories. So even if it's not somebody, even if it doesn't affect you, you know, if, if you don't struggle with that, but you know, somebody else in your family does or a friend or whatever, like, I think we can all relate to that kind of story though, of, of people overcoming obstacles. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'd love it if you were willing to share your own personal story. Um, I always say like the name of this podcast is the warrior within us. So, um, and, and I've had guests on before that were like, I've never really considered myself a warrior, but now that you mention it, like here's the part of my story that feels the most aligned with that word. So, um, and I certainly think that anyone with a recovery story definitely has that, you know, has sort of engaged that part of themselves that is a warrior. So if you would, would be, um, willing, I would love to hear your own recovery story. Yeah, of course. I'm an open book and feel free to jump in and stop me at any point. If you have questions or comments or whatever, cause sometimes what I'm asked to share, I just like get in this tunnel vision and just start talking and don't realize how long I'm talking or that I'm not <laughs> pausing to give people a chance to talk. So yeah, just jump in whenever. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll just kind of start from the beginning and, and I guess go up to where we're at now, if that's cool with you. Yeah. sounds great. Uh, yeah. So, so like I said, it kind of starts in that, at that adolescence puberty kind of age, just not feeling comfortable with myself, not really, not really feeling that sense of belonging, feeling kind of alien and just kind of not really knowing where my place in the world was. And and to give a little bit of, of context to my life and, you know, I feel like it's probably a minority. So people might not relate to this part because there's some, some weird parts of my life, but uh, I was, we a all have them, kid. right? <laughs> yeah. I was, I was homeschooled K through 12. So that's kind of a unique, um, situation and my dad was in law enforcement we moved to the dallas area in the early 90s or now mid 90s so i was four or five when we moved to the dallas area and he took a position in the narcotics division for the state police so he was working undercover pretending to be a drug user buying drugs from drug dealers and then putting together cases and arresting drug dealers uh, so, so we moved to the big city so that he could pursue that career. And I grew up in a very sheltered religious household and I didn't have a lot of exposure to drugs and alcohol. My parents didn't use, uh, my dad drank socially, but never to excess. I've never seen my dad intoxicated. So I wasn't, I didn't grow up in that environment. Like a lot of people that I hear their stories where they grew up with parents that were using or, you know, in that environment. So I, I grew up in a very sheltered environment, but I was definitely a very curious kid. And I think, I think part of it for me was the fact that it was like, it was so understood in the house. Like we don't, we don't do drugs. We don't drink. We don't like whatever you tell me not to do. Mm. I want to do. Mm -hmm. I can remember even before I got into drugs, like my parents would, would, preview movies and stuff and they were trying to keep us away from from movies with like violence and sexual content and stuff trying to keep us i guess innocent or whatever you know trying to stay within their own religious beliefs i guess and trying to do the best that they could and and looking back on it i see that now like they were doing what they thought was best for us but i didn't see it that way so i can remember even as like even young as like 10 11 
them not letting me watch movies that my friends were watching and, and feeling left out in that aspect. And then, you know, I would, I, I, I'm a clever kid. I would find ways to download movies illegally and like, or borrow DVDs from friends or whatever. So I could feel like I was still a part of. So I, I, even from a young age, I can see where I would manipulate and I would do whatever I needed to do to get what I wanted. But it was that same thing of like, you know, if, if you tell me not to do it, I'm going to do it. So, mm. uh, you know, I, I, I started using it at a pretty young age. I, I, I got a part-time job and some of the, some of my coworkers there would smoke weed after work. And after a little while of working with them, they invited me to come with them. And, and I finally felt like this, this level of acceptance. Cause I was that weird, awkward kid. I wasn't good in social situations. I was homeschooled. I, anything social just made me feel kind of, kind of weird. And, and so I, I went with them and I can remember that very first time I got high and just this sense of like calm that sank over and just like all of my anxiety and worries and everything just kind of melted away. And I was like, all right, like, I don't know why, I don't know why my parents are so against drugs. Like, this is awesome. I feel great. Everything's funny. I feel calm and relaxed. You know, we're just chilling at somebody's house and eating fried chicken and playing <laughs> darts and just kind of doing whatever, you know, high school kids do. And, uh, and I continued on that, on that path through all of high school of, of drinking alcohol and, and smoking weed, but I never went any further than that. And, it was manageable. I felt like I, I was getting away with it. My dad worked long hours, so I, I kind of knew his schedule. So I would do my best not to come home intoxicated. My mom is, my mom grew up also kind of in a similar household of like super Christian, super sheltered, whatever. So she didn't really know what the signs were of me being drunk or high. So I could kind of get away a little bit when, when she was there, but I would, I, I knew my dad's schedule, so I would, I would never get too fucked up when I was, when I knew mm -hmm. he was going to be around. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, so I continued on that through all of high school and then got to college age, moved out of my parents' house, started going to school locally in Dallas. So, you know, my, my parents live in the suburbs, so about 30 minutes, 45 minutes away. So I was still far, far enough away that I felt like they didn't know what was going on. I had an apartment with some roommates and, and they also liked to drink and smoke and, and it was, you know, it was the first apartment, so it was in kind of a lower income neighborhood, um, definitely low income. And uh, I had several neighbors that were drug dealers, I found out, and drugs were just readily available in this neighborhood that I lived in. And I wanted to try. I was just so curious. What do these different substances do? Like, this is what my dad's been fighting against as long as I can remember since I was a kid. Like, what are these substances like? What are, you know, there's mm -hmm. just this curiosity in me of what, what it was like. And every, and the people I was living with were using. And it was, it, it was just the, re it was like the perfect recipe. Like there are, they're doing it. I want to learn more about it. And so I just started to experiment. And, and I think a lot of people go through that phase too, that college age, like, like we, like we talked about, you know, experimenting and, and drinking too much. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't see it as a problem at the time because everybody else was doing it. And it was just kind of the social norm for that age and, and being in that neighborhood, everybody was using it. It was just, it was just normal. So I started using harder drugs, started experimenting um, and then my grades start to go down. And then next thing I know, I'm on academic probation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then I get to the second semester of my schooling and it just continues in that downward trajectory. And by the end of my second semester, I've been expelled and, uh, I'm like, okay, now what do I do? Cause I hadn't really made a whole lot of plans for the future. I didn't really know what I was going to do really I was just going to school to get my parents off my back because I didn't know what else to do with my life and sure and now I'm no longer enrolled in school my parents are pissed off they're starting to put two and two together that my like the I think at that point my dad knew that I was drinking and smoking and stuff but I don't think he knew the full extent of my drug use and I think getting expelled was kind of the first sign for him that there might be a little bit more to this. A larger than, issue. Yeah, yeah. There might be a bigger problem here. Um, 
so I, I end up getting a, a job delivering pizza and it's just kind of whatever. I'm just kind of going through life. I don't really have any sort of plan or purpose. And, uh, I get introduced to methamphetamine and, uh, it was a, it was a late night pizza spot where during the week it was open till two or three in the morning on the weekends. It was open till like four in the morning. So you have like the bar crowd and all that. And, and I got introduced to meth and I tried it. And the first time I took it, I was just like, this is the missing piece. Like, this is what I've been missing in my life. I felt this new level of confidence. I felt alert. I felt awake. I felt like I could, I felt like a superhero. Like I could just take on anything that came at me. It's just like this. I don't really know how to describe it, but the first time I did, it was just like, this is the missing piece in my life. Mm. And it was like at that moment, unconsciously just like made this decision of like, this is what my life is now going to revolve around. I love the way this makes me feel. I love the confidence that I have. I love everything about it. Like the, the euphoria. It's like, I'm going to completely pursue this. Like this is the only thing that matters anymore in my life. And, uh, and that was what my life consisted of for, for about two years or so was just, getting more meth and staying high and eventually I ended up moving in with my meth dealer and got deeper into that world of drug addiction and drug culture and just being being living in a house with someone that's selling puts you into all kinds of other situations and uh and I imagine when you're like world your own little world revolves around that. And that's all that's around you. You kind of like forget that anything exists outside of that, right? Like you, you kind of lose touch with the fact that there is this whole other world of choices out there, but you're sort of blind to them because now this is your world. So it's like, no, this is just what we do, right? Like this is this, that became your normal and, you know, you were surrounded by people whose normal that also was who I'm sure in a way for whatever, however you take it, those people were the people that mattered to you then. So you, you know, it was probably really challenging for you to even see that they were a part of the problem too, because they were your people. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But at the same time, because just, just like comparing and contrasting my life then to the way I was raised and stuff like there was still this little voice in the back of my head that that I would push away that was telling me like this is not how you're supposed to live this is not what you're supposed to do like there was something in me that knew that what that what I was doing and the things that I had to do to get drugs and and just the lifestyle I was living was not right I just felt mm. I felt, but I, but I kept pushing that down and, you know, just kept getting high and I would get high and I would forget about that. This is not what I need to be doing. This is not what I'm supposed to do. Um, so, so I did that for about two years or so. And then, uh, and, and it's weird to talk about, and I feel like some, some people understand it and some people won't. And I've shared it on some podcast interviews and some I haven't, and I'm not sure why, but, uh, I took some DMT uh, and for people that don't know, it's a hallucinogen and I took it, I took some DMT and I had this out of body experience where I was at my own funeral from like a third person perspective. And the only people that were there in attendance were the minister that was doing the service, my mom, my dad, and my sister. And I remember, and, and they were talking back like whispering during the service to each other about like what a terrible person I was and how mm -hmm. I had had so much potential that I had wasted and you know I could have done so much with my life but instead I decided to do drugs and and that was all that my life had amounted to and I, and I came out of this trip and I was like where where were all my friends where were the people that I you know that I'm close with where's where are the people that are in this room with me, you know, on why weren't they at my funeral? Mm. And I had this realization that, that I just, I couldn't continue on this path anymore. So a few days later, I call my sister. I, I break down, I'm crying. I'm telling her everything. Like she knew I was using drugs, but, 
at this point I had alienated myself from my family because I knew that they didn't approve of my lifestyle and the choices that I was making and anybody that was in my life that was telling me not to do the things that I wanted to do, I would cut out. Mm. I would have as little to do with with them as possible. So I call her, I tell her what's going on. I tell her I'm living at my dealer's house. Like I have this meth problem and I just can't stop and I don't know what to do. And she invites me to come move in with her and set up a bed in her dining room, which was absolutely incredible of her to offer that because I was just so lost and broken and had no idea what I was going to do. So I move in with her. I quit meth cold turkey, but I'm not in any kind of recovery program. I, I didn't know anything about recovery. I didn't know about 12 steps. I didn't know about alternative programs. I didn't know about anything. Like the only recovery that I had any idea about was AA and that was from movies and TV shows of them showing, you know, a group of sad people in a church basement, you know, like (laughs) hug and say a prayer. So I didn't want anything to do with that. And, and so I decided I was going to do this thing on my own. So I I put down the hard drugs and I decided I was just going to drink and smoke weed because that had worked for me in high school and, and life was okay then. And I felt all right. And so that was what I decided to do. I'm just going to drink. I'm going to smoke weed. I'm going to be fine. I'll figure this out. Like I'll get my life back on track. And I, I, I underestimated alcohol. I really did. I didn't see, cause throughout the whole time I, I, I would drink some, but I was never really a heavy drinker. Once I found meth, I, I, like I said, I, I just completely devoted myself to to meth, but Mm. I I still drink occasionally, but I, I underestimated alcohol and I thought that I could handle it. I didn't, I didn't have the knowledge that I have now knowing that for me personally, complete abstinence is the only thing that will work. I can't, I can't dabble in anything. I can't use one substance and, and, and still have control. And I didn't, I didn't know that then because I didn't have any kind of recovery. So I start drinking and it's just not enough. Like I just cannot get enough alcohol. And I get to this point where I'm just constantly in a state of being drunk. I'm still working at this pizza place. I'm a delivery driver. I'm drinking all day and delivering pizza, which is mm. a terrible, terrible combination. And, you know, I look back on the past and I regret my decisions and, and, you know, I see the stupidity and, yeah, I yet I I don't condone people drinking and driving, and I know that it's. I feel like there's there's so many campaigns and we talk about it and this and that, but you know I I just didn't care because at that point there hadn't really been any real consequences. I thought I was I thought I was fine, you know. There've been a few times when I had gotten stopped by cops or whatever, but I would always bust out like my dad's business card or whatever and name drop and get out of that. And so I I have this sense of being invincible. So. Fast forward a few months into this this self-recovery program, whatever you would call it, harm reduction, I don't know. And uh, it's Super Bowl Sunday, and one of the busiest days for pizza delivery is Super Bowl Sunday, so it's all hands on deck. Everybody's working. Everybody's taking like three or four orders at a time, so we're gone for, you know, up to like an hour at a time. So at the beginning of the shift, I grab a... T- grab a 12 pack like I always do stuff it in my center console. I'm drinking in between deliveries. It's a, the neighborhood that I was delivering in was a predominantly younger college kind of area. So every delivery I'm going to, it's like a house party or there's a bunch of people there watching the game. They answer the door. They're already, they're already drinking and stuff. They offer you beers and shots. And so I'm just, just pounding drinks all night. And to make matters worse, my go-to bar and granted that I'm, I'm 20 at this point. I'm not even, I'm not even legal age mm. to drink. Um, my, my go-to bar down the street is closing and they decided that Super Bowl Sunday was going to be their last hoorah. And so I go in there on my break and they're taking liquor off the back wall and just handing bottles to all the regulars. So I walk in, everybody knows my name. They grab a bottle of whiskey off the back wall, hand it to me, and I'm just down and down in this bottle of whiskey. I'm good, whatever. I get back in my truck, drive back to work, 
drink a little bit more and uh i i just went on this long run with three or four deliveries i'm heading back to the shop to pick up some more pizza the night's going well i've been drinking tips are good like i'm just feeling great and i pass out while i'm driving mm. and when i pass out i i fall and i slump to my right towards the passenger side of, of my truck but i'm still holding on to the steering wheel and i'm in a residential neighborhood and i don't know exactly how fast i'm going but I, I would say probably around 40 miles an hour or so slumped to my right. And as I'm going down the street, I hit four parked cars, sideswipe them, boom, 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 boom. And I'm still slumped over. And after I hit that, after I slide down that last car, I'm still going to my right. And I drift over and I go through somebody's front yard, go through their fence and I hit their house. Oof. And I don't, I, I, it's, it's really foggy. The actual part of me hitting the cars and, and hitting the house and all that, but I've I've seen pictures and I've, I I re returned to the scene of my crime after I got out of jail and saw some of the damage that I did. But I just remember after I'd hit that car, the people who or that house, the people came out of their house to see what had happened, and that was like the the moment that that I really kind of came to, and I realized like. I'm not going to talk my way out of this one. There's mm. no way that, that my dad's business, business card can get me out of this. Yeah, this is not, this is not going to end well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I imagine you all like in a way there needed to be right. Like an end to the path you were on. So, um, you know, what, however you kind of look at it, it's like, there had to be an end. And so maybe, I mean, obviously that was like a terrible end, but, but not the worst end I could think of, not the worst end I could think of. Um, and, you know, I, I, I can totally relate to, to the pieces of the story that are like, you kind of think you're invincible or you think that, you know, maybe someday I'll address this but it's, it's just not going to be today. Um, and you know, sometimes we don't always get a say in when that someday is sometimes it's the decision is made for us. Um, so what, like, what were you met with when, when that sort of happened? Oh, well, looking back on it now, I'm, I'm so grateful that, that the events happened the way that they did. And, uh, you know, I regret, I regret my actions. I regret drinking and driving and, and, you know, I, I ultimately got charged with the DWI, but I, I am so grateful that I didn't cause any physical harm to anybody else because if I had injured or killed someone, I, I just don't know how I would have, I just don't know how I would deal with that. Like that would, it's crazy to think about that. Cause there's other, there's people that I know personally that were in that, in a very similar situation and, and had much worse outcomes and and i just i just it, it's so hard for me to sit here and think about just how reckless and and stupid i was and so self-centered not thinking about anybody else and i can't i don't even know what would have happened if, if it had gone worse but I'm, I'm grateful today like you said that there was an end and that was that was kind of the end for me it wasn't completely the end but that was what started the process. Okay. Yeah, that started yeah. the process. So yeah, I get arrested. I go to jail. My dad being a cop and old school decides he's just going to leave me in jail for however long they'll keep me there. So I sit in jail for about a week and then get released. And my parents decide that I'm going to move back home with them. They don't really give me much of an option. Uh, and at that point, I think my sister was kind of done with me because I had been all over the place. I had, I had done some, some not so nice things while I was intoxicated living with her, uh, you know, just being rude and loud. And there were a few incidents where I'd been kind of violent when I was really drunk. And, and I think she was just kind of over my shit at that point. Mm. Uh, so my parents took me back into their house and, and I was not thrilled like that. That to me was, I think in that moment and in kind of that 
childish mentality that I had. I think I was more embarrassed about the fact that I had to move back in with my parents than I was embarrassed that I had a DWI, mm. which today, like my, I've had so many perspective shifts and, 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 you know, recovery is such an incredible journey that, you know, looking back on it now, like that was the least of my worries. The fact that I was living with mom and dad, like who cares, man. <laughs> but at that, at that moment, you know, I just, I felt so ashamed of being there and, uh, I got sentenced to probation. I had to do a bunch of community service. And then one of the other stipulations of my probation was that I had to attend either NA or AA meetings and I had to go three times a week. And that was, that was the beginning of my recovery journey. That was where the seeds were planted. I wasn't fully on board with the concept that I had a problem. I still went into those meetings in the beginning with this mindset that, you know, whatever excuse I could come up with, wrong place, wrong time, you know, next time I won't drink liquor, I'll only, I'll only drink beer, you mm. know, what, what, a, you know, whatever. All, all the little mind games we play, right? Like, oh yeah, I'm only going to drink clear liquor. Because, I'm only going to drink on the weekends. I'm yeah. Only, yeah. What, the, whatever excuse the bargaining. I come up with. Yeah. 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 So yeah. I definitely, definitely went in with that mindset and it took me about two years of going to meetings before I was at a place where I could commit to recovery. So I was still, while I was on probation, I was still going to bars occasionally. I was still drinking after work when I could get away with it. Cause again, I was back at home with mom and dad and they were doing their best to keep a pretty close eye on me as a grown adult living at my parents' house. Um, but I was still, still using when I could. And I hadn't gotten to a place where I realized that I had a problem, but the seeds of recovery were being planted when I was going to those meetings and I was making connections with people in the meetings and forming friendships. And I can remember the exact moment when I had that, that aha moment of like, I cannot continue on this path. And I was at a meeting, I was hung over. It was the day after Christmas and a guy that I had become really close with, his name was, his name's Tim. He pulled me aside after the meeting. Cause if you guys have been to 12 step meetings, like after the meeting, there's like the meeting after the meeting in the parking lot, people smoking cigarettes, doing whatever. I'd say most people probably vape nowadays, but whatever. Um, and he pulled me aside and he's like, dude, you cannot continue going down this path that you're on with one foot in recovery and one foot using, you can't, you can't do both. You have to mm. pick a side and I love you too much to see you continue to throw your life away and keep making these bad decisions. And he's like, if you continue, you're going to get another DWI or it might be worse. Like you don't know what the outcome is going to be. He's like, or you could give this recovery thing a shot. And at this point in my journey, again, I had all that shame around being at home with mom and dad and my life had kind of fallen apart, even though it wasn't really much of a life to begin with but everything that I knew was gone. And I was just in this place of like depression and didn't really know what I wanted to do. And him reaching out and showing that love and compassion and care for me was enough for me to flip that switch. And I told him, all right, you got one year. I'll try recovery for one year. I won't drink. I won't smoke. I won't do anything for one year. And he's like, fair enough. And, and if you don't, like the results of your one year in recovery, then you can go back to using and you're free to, to go back to that misery that you knew. Hmm. And I was like, okay, fine. Like I, I will commit to one year. And, uh, next month that'll be, it'll be eight years since, since I made that agreement to, to stop for, for one year and just the, the benefits and, just I, I, it's so hard to put recovery into words, words. Just all the gifts and the blessings and you know it was so hard in the beginning I didn't want to get vulnerable I didn't want to be honest with people I didn't feel comfortable sharing my story or really sharing anything I didn't feel comfortable talking like I would go out of my way to be five or ten minutes late to a meeting so that they wouldn't ask me to read one of the readings at the beginning because I mm. was just terrified of, of reading it in front of people or talking and to make that commitment. And then I got a sponsor and I started doing step work and, and all of a sudden my life starts to change and I start 
seeing things from a different perspective and I start, you know, he has me doing things like a gratitude list and I start realizing that maybe everything in my life isn't terrible. Maybe, maybe there is some beauty in my life. And he encouraged me that if I wanted to be successful and cause, cause one of the things that I really saw in the beginning was all the material things is like, look at these people with these nice cars and these nice clothes and all this, like, I want what they have not realizing that none of that shit matters, but mm. I, you know, telling my sponsor, like, I want a car. I didn't even have my driver's license back at that point, but I want a car. I want this stuff. And, and he would have these conversations of like, well, if you want to have the things that those people have, then you need to, you need to better yourself. You need to, you know, work your way up in your job. You need to find a different job. You need, you know, constantly be doing things to work on yourself. And it wasn't just things in recovery, but he was encouraging me to, to work on myself in other areas. And something about just having people in my corner, having people believe in me and encourage me and, and give me some guidance. That was just what I really needed in that moment to help propel me forward. And so, I, I mean, looking at, looking at my life today with almost eight years it's hard to even imagine that my life was that story that I just told you. I'm, mm. I'm married. I have an almost two year old daughter. I have a second daughter that's going to be here in the next six weeks or so. I have a career that I love. My wife and I just got a house at the beginning of the year. Like there's all these blessings and things that have happened in my life that I never imagined were possible. And and the crazy part is my wife's never seen me high or drunk. Like I mm -hmm. met her several years into my recovery. And so she, when she hears me share on podcasts or hears me share at meetings, like she doesn't, she has a hard time believing that I lived this whole other life because recovery has allowed me to, to address the root causes and, and deal with some of the traumas that are in my life and begin to rebuild my life into a, into a positive thing where I can help other people and I can begin to heal my own issues and, and be a positive influence in the world. Mm. Uh, and, and one of my favorite quotes, and I feel like I say it all the time and I can't remember who said it, which really uh, irritates me because I say <laughs> it all the time, but the best description of recovery that I've heard is that we're building a life today where we no longer feel the need to escape our reality. Mm, absolutely. And you have a purpose outside of yourself, right? So it's not just, you know, doing what you think in the moment feels good to you. It's like yeah. living for a purpose that is outside of yourself. Um, I think that's so key because when you feel like it's, you're alone in your pursuit of whatever it is that you're going for and nobody else really matters, then, you know, it's easy to see how people can fall down a path where it's just like, well, it, you know, this feels good to me in the moment and I don't really have a purpose outside of myself. So I can do whatever I want to do because, um, you know, it's, we just then become our own worst enemies, right? Um, when we don't have a purpose that's, that's bigger than us and whatever that means to each individual. I, I don't have any hard and fast rules for what I think that should mean for people, but I just think when you have purpose beyond your own existence, um, that keeps you moving in, in the direction of what's positive. Um, I do believe that people are really afraid to be happy right? Like for whatever reason, and I can list a whole bunch of reasons why people are so afraid to be happy, whether it's they're thinking the other shoe's going to drop or they, they don't feel worthy of the kind of happiness that, um, they could create because it might mean to them that somebody else is unhappy because of it, or that, you know, there are other people that don't get that benefit that we all are worthy of. But I just think that, um, we resist what, what's, what truly will make us happy, right? Like we want to, um, there's just like the mind is such a tricky thing that like when we're, um, getting those, like, and I know there's a lot of science behind this, but when we're getting the, the chemicals that we get from like negative experiences, like our mind then craves those negative experiences. So it's like, 
you really do have to be intentional about how you want to live your life and what you want your life to look like, uh, because it can be really easy to fall into what feels terrible, but actually like crave that, right? Like crave the misery and the discomfort and like Mm -hmm. the misfortune, like then we just become addicted to what feels really shitty. And we don't understand like why it's, you know, then we view it as like, this is happening to us. Like life is really just miserable. And why can't I catch a break? And it's because we're not really looking for what actually is good. Like what feels good? What, um, like in a true sense, like what is helping me to live better and then helping other people in the process. Um, but none of it is easy, right? <laughs> like right. N- none of it is easy. And, and then um, there's comfort in that, in the familiar too. just, it's scary. Change is scary. It's uncomfortable to, to do something different. Those first few months in recovery were just so hard to, for, at least for me to, to be open and vulnerable and share and take suggestions. And yeah, I, I much prefer just stay in the the same rut that I'm familiar with and that, Mm. that I know. Yeah. Right. It's comfortable there. Right. Like the, the magic doesn't ever happen like inside our comfort zone. We have to step out of the comfort zone. I'm curious really to hear a little bit about like, if you're willing to share your relationship, like with your parents and, um, you know, you made a comment about like them just doing the best they could. And I do firmly believe that I, I think would be hard pressed. And of course there are some sadly examples of parents that, that don't have their kids best interest at heart, but, but I think the vast majority of like humans really want to do right by their kids and they make decisions based on what they think is best for them. Um, but what has that journey sort of been like between you and your parents? Because I'm sure they kind of thought like, no, we're doing all the things that you do to raise kids that stay away from drugs and alcohol. And, um, so I'm sure that was kind of a, like a challenging thing to sort of look at, like, where did we sort of not go wrong, but like, where did the, where did the ball get dropped? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's been interesting. So I I think my dad kind of understands it more just because he was in that world for so long, even though he wasn't using, but he was pretending to use and being around other people that were using. So I think he understands it more than my mom does. And I think my mom carried a lot of guilt thinking that she had done something, you know, if if I'd only done something different, if I had, you know, what fill in the blank, she always, or not always, but she did carry this sense of somehow it was her fault that she had done something wrong. And, you know, the, the relationship in the beginning, when I first moved back in and I was on probation and doing all that, like it was, it was pretty rocky. Cause like I said, I didn't want to be there and it was just weird because I hadn't, I hadn't, I just didn't know my place in the world. Um, but I'm so grateful for recovery. It's allowed me to, to work on myself and then, and then mend those relationships. And today my parents and I are closer than we've ever been. And there was another perspective shift that I had when I had my first daughter and something about becoming a parent shines this new light on the relationship that you have with your parents and you start to understand some of their decisions and some of the events that happen in your life a little bit more, I think, because now you're in those same shoes of like, I'm trying to provide for this tiny person and I'm trying to make sure that they are healthy and happy and protected. And, you know, it's, it's just such a weird thing. And I, I feel like most people probably get it. Cause a lot of, a lot totally. of people out there are parents, but just like, <laughs> I am responsible for this tiny little seven pound defenseless baby. And now I have to, you know, take care of it and, and try to help them learn and be successful and, you know, figure out how to navigate this crazy world. And so I, I, I can see from my parents' perspective, how they were doing what they thought was best and trying to protect me from that world. Um, and, and I think it just had a neg- it had the opposite effect. And I don't think that that is any fault of their own. And, and I've had conversations with my parents since then, you know, where 
my mom has asked me like is there anything that i did is there anything i could have done differently and i was like no there wasn't like there was always this draw to that to that that curiosity of like what are drugs like i always had this sense of rebellion i always wanted to do you know the opposite of what i was told and you know i was really into punk music and just kind of alternative lifestyle just kind of whatever you know do whatever you want do whatever feels good and so i don't think that there's anything that that she could have done differently and i think no matter what they had done at some point i would have gotten alcohol i would have gotten drugs i would have you know i would have found my way to addiction one way or another and it might not have been substances you know it could have been it could have been anything else it could have been food it could have been gambling it could have been sex it could have been porn like who knows what it could have been if it wasn't drugs i'm sure i would have gotten addicted to something else and, mm-hmm. and let that take over my life so i i don't hold anything against my parents i know that they were doing the best that they could and and you know we have a great relationship today and and i'm i'm grateful that we were able to to rebuild that relationship because i thought i had completely destroyed it which now as a parent again (laughs) i look at that and think there's nothing that my daughter could do that would ever be like you know would would end our relationship um but i but i had that idea in in my head that that was the end of it and and i was i was also afraid that like me being arrested would look bad on my dad and he would be embarrassed because his coworkers would know about it and you know, at this point it's in the past and, and he, I, he's told me multiple times. He's like, I, I hate that you had to go through that, but I'm so grateful that it wasn't worse because that could have been so much worse. And I'm glad that that was the only, the only thing that happened. And yeah. I guess, I guess you're right. And in, in hindsight, it's, it's fortunate that it wasn't worse. And, uh, I mean, my relationship with them today is, is, is great. I'm going over to their house for Thanksgiving with, my family and my sister and her family and we're doing thanksgiving over there and and uh i i I try to spend time with them as much as i can it's it's challenging with my own family and work and all that but you know we still keep in contact and 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 our relationship is the best that it's ever been that's awesome i think anytime you can sort of take pain and turn it into purpose or take you know what's really hard in life and relationships and learn something from it. Like, I don't think there's anything more rewarding than that. And I've, you know, heard stories just even in doing this podcast or listening to other podcasts about the most terrible things that people have gone through and not sort of being the catalyst for like the most joy that somebody could have ever experienced. Um, and I, and I think that's true in almost any aspect of life. I also think that our, lessons are sort of, um, ours to learn. And that's sort of been, and I think you'll find this, like, as your kids get older, cause you still have really little ones, um, that you see things and your decisions are kind of like influenced by like how your own life happened. But something that's really helped me as a parent is to kind of let myself off the hook that I'm going to be like solely responsible for all of the experiences they have in their life that like, they're going to make some choices that I don't love. And they're going to experience pain that I wish I could prevent them from having to experience. But those are sort of like their lessons to learn. And I kind of see my role as a mom. I see that my role is just to kind of like, hopefully safely and with like the least amount of collateral damage, usher them from childhood into adulthood. And then after that, they're kind of on their own to like build the life that they want to live. And I think that's helped me to kind of look at parenting as like, I'm not here to turn my kids into who I think they should be. I'm just here to kind of be a witness and a guide to whoever they're meant to be. So I think like letting our own parents off the hook, but also letting ourselves off the hook that like, yeah, we're going to do the best we can as parents. We're going to screw some things up. We're going to make some probably choices we wish we could go back and make differently but we're all as humans just here to learn the lessons we're meant to learn. And we're all going to learn them somehow. Like, and if we had a crystal ball to see like, oh, how is this one choice going to like influence me in my life? We probably all make different choices, but at the end of the day, you know, we're just here for a very short time. So hopefully we like learn the lessons we need to learn and live life 
the best we can. And um, in my mind, I think you had to sort of, I mean, it's not fortunate, right? Like, it's not like, I'm just so glad, Brett, that you went through all that shit you had to go through because look at you now. But there is a piece of me that wants to say that, that wants to say like all of that, like hardship and all of those like really crappy choices that you made built you into the man you are now. So like, if we really can muster up that gratitude to say like, in a way, I'm glad that I went through what I went through because I wouldn't be who I am today if I didn't. Um, I think there's a lot of power in that. I I agree. I agree. It, it is weird to say that I'm grateful for those terrible life choices and the the uh, the consequences of my actions. But uh, yeah, it's true. I I am grateful for that. And it's weird to think I don't even know where my life would be if I hadn't gone through those struggles. If I hadn't been in those situations if I hadn't been forced to find a recovery and work a program and and really learn who I am as a person like I don't know what my life would be like and I heard it on another podcast somebody said and I, I'm going to paraphrase because I can't remember the exact quote but they were talking about if if they hadn't had that one big moment in their life where they were forced to get real with themselves and, and seek recovery what how different your life would be because you you would most likely still be in that spot of you know that not ever addressing your your problems you would still be okay with using and you would still just kind of be getting by with life whereas when we find recovery we're given all these incredible opportunities to work on ourselves and do that self-examination and and really have that inward perspective and see who we truly are and see our assets and our defects and, and all those things. But if, if we hadn't ever been in that situation where we were forced to, to be in recovery, we wouldn't, we would just continue on in this path of just kind of a meaningless life where we just, you know, continue on and do whatever. Yeah. Just like an existence. That's like more an existence than that, than a, like a well-lived life. Cause to me, a well-lived life, has meaning and purpose and influence over other people. Um, and existence is like, just like other less sophisticated, like beings in, in the world that just kind of don't have the kind of purpose that a human being has, right? Like, um, and then just goes through their existence, like whatever eating and sleeping and that's it. So, um, and now look at you, you're, you have this podcast and you're reaching other people and influencing their lives. And I don't think that's any small thing. I think, uh, anytime we touch other people with our experiences that causes this ripple effect, that is what sort of propels us forward. It's like, we all kind of have a role and we all have to do our part. And sometimes it feels like minuscule or it doesn't feel like that impactful, but without you, the world wouldn't be what it is. So like we all really do as human beings make such an important and vital, you know, um, we're, we're such an important vital component. Otherwise, like the world would be completely different if you didn't exist in it. So Um, I really think that the work you're doing is super important and I'm really uh, grateful that we connected. Um, And, you know, I think like you said, when COVID hit, like it feels weird to say that it was a good thing, but I think that's like anything, right? We can look at even like the most terrible of situations. And if we can find one piece of good in it, um, that's how we're going to like keep moving forward. That's the only way. So I really appreciate you coming and sharing your experiences. And I think it really does matter. Well, I appreciate you inviting me on and, and I'm, I too am grateful that we connected and, and I'm grateful for the work that you're doing, sharing the warrior stories. And I feel like you've even kind of broadened the, the perspective and, and bringing people from all different walks of life that, that are overcomers and sharing their stories. And I love what you're doing as well. So I, I appreciate you having me on and and really grateful we were able to connect.
What an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed it and you want to hear others like it, I would love it if you check out the links in the podcast description. I'd be so grateful if you would subscribe, leave a review, and share it with anyone who would also enjoy it. You can also find me over on Instagram at K-R-I-S-T-I-N-M-I-C or visit my website at www.thewarriorwithinus.com. Talk to you soon.